today on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, Simpatico. Snap Judgment, storytelling with a beat. Stay tuned. I'm a reader. And if you're a reader too, you'll understand why I'm excited about this app for reading called Oyster. CNN called Oyster the Netflix for books. It's really beautiful design. A subscription gets you access to over 1 million ebooks that you can read anytime you like, and it's just $9.95 a month. You've always got your phone or tablet with you, so now you can have your entire library with you. And with Oyster, you have immediate access to ebooks, and you can see what your friends are reading as well. Oyster is always featuring new book recommendations from a team of editors, and over time, this app gets to know what you like. The book suggestions are sometimes really spot on. The selection is endless. They've got everything from The Hobbit to Stephen King to thousands of New York Times bestsellers. And the best part? Subscription to Oyster gives you unlimited access to ebooks. Go ahead. Give it a try. Read as many books as you want until you find the one that's right for you. And for Snap listeners, the first month is free. So head on over to oysterbooks.com slash snap to start reading. Again, that's oysterbooks.com slash snap. With Oyster, the world is yours for the reading. Okay, so what I'm about to tell you is illegal, which is as it should be. So please do not under any circumstances attempt to recreate this at home. Back in the day, I met this guy with whom I did not hit it off with. He thought I was a moron. I thought he was a blowhard, whatever. That's not the illegal part. This is. One day, I go to a backyard barbecue and I see this guy. This guy sees me. His eyes narrow. My eyes narrow. Then he says, hey man, want to play some charts? Sure, fella. I'll play. See, charts are these weighted darts that you throw onto a target on the other side of the lawn. Kind of like horseshoes, only they're big darts. And what this guy doesn't know is that I am a jart master. Everyone gets to have a talent jarts are mine. But then he says, you gotta play our way. <laughs> Whatever. I'm gonna school this clown. Then I see what they're doing. These aren't jarts like I know. Instead, they've taken lawn darts and filed them until they're impossibly sharp, flying spears. An old-fashioned duel, they marched several paces away from each other to either side of the lawn, turn and toss these sharpened darts directly at the other person. Whoever moves out of the way loses. Whoever has a jart land closest to them without moving wins. 
To sell these charts is now officially a federal crime. It's the most insane craziness I've ever heard of. So, I grab five charts. I walk to the middle of the yard and stand with my back to this guy. He calls out. Seven paces, we step away from each other. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We turn around. I look at him and I don't know what I'm more scared of. Him hitting me or me hitting him. I'm holding the red jarts, clutching them. So I go first. Normally, I can drop one of these babies inside a Coke bottle from 15 feet, but not when they can pierce flesh. The guy stands there, big goofy grin on his face, waiting, not a care in the world. My hands sweating. I look down the lawn. I wind up and I let fly. Why, why, why? Not even close. Everybody laughs. All right. All right. Honestly, I'm relieved until the guy squares up. Looks down at me. Exact same goofy grin on his face as before. Cocks his arm back and I run away. Don't shoot. Don't do it. Uncle, dang it. Don't shoot. Everybody laughs again at me, except for the guy. He's like, dude, I can't believe you stood there as long as you did. You know, I'm not a very good shot. And we both start giggling at our collective stupidity and get to talking. You know, about music, film, sound, politics, whatever. Giggling the whole time. And I tell him, dude, look, I'm moving to California. Look me up if you ever get that way. And surprisingly, he does exactly that. And tentatively at first, but then in earnest, we start making stuff together. Music, short films, we have some adventures, mere homelessness. We counsel each other through breakups, marriages, towering failures. A run for mayor, write screenplays. We have these epic screaming matches computer crashes, car crashes, create music, TV shows. This is the guy that sings in my wedding. He's at the hospital at the birth of my child. And this is the guy on the other side of this glass, right here. Go Blue, M Go Blue. That's the old producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Big kisses. So of course, I tell you that to tell you this. Today, on Snap Judgment, we proudly present Simpatico. Amazing stories from real people operating on the same wavelength, even if they don't know it. My name is Glenn Washington, and yes, I know exactly which frequency you're vibrating to. Because you're listening. To snap judgment.
kick today's episode off with a story about vibrations and what happens when you're extremely sensitive and when you're not. Snap Judgment's Joe Rosenberg brings us priceless works of art, a mysterious Japanese businessman, $20 million on the line, and the most ancient and honorable form of ritualized combat. So our story is going to start with this guy. Good Lord, I'm practically making love to this microphone now. His name is Jonathan Randall. I'm a deputy chairman of Christie's in America, who spent a lot of his time in the late 80s, early 90s, selling material to Japan. Material, meaning art. And in the mid-90s to the mid-2000s, going back to Japan to get everything back um, that I'd sold to them 10 years before. The extraordinary thing was you'd go to a trunk room, which looks like that last scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, those things in boxes going on forever. Um, and open a box, and in the box would be a work of art or several works of art, and you'd pick the object up and you'd look on the back of it and you'd find your handwriting from 10 years ago. That's so surreal. It really is like kind of this weird ebb and flow of prestige between people. And, and so long as you're the middleman, um, you know, uh, y- you'll be all right in the end. Yeah, absolutely. The beauty of the bubble market. But of course, Christie's did not have this wonderful pie all to itself. It's a market that is really a duopoly between two auction house giants. There's Christie's and then there's the other place. You mean Sotheby's? Yeah. It's like saying my opponent instead of, yeah. No, that's actually how one normally refers to it, the other place. So it's sort of uh, friendly-ish rivalry. I wouldn't say it was entirely friendly. In Sotheby's and Christie's, you see, there was one collection they both had their eyes on. The Masprodenko corporate collection was a, was a, a, a jewel in the crown. It had everything that one wanted to sell at that precise moment. You know, the the Cezanne, the Picasso, the Van Gogh, their their trophy names. And, most importantly... It was $20 million worth of business. There was just one problem. Mr. Hashiyama, the CEO who had founded the collection, he was really chummy with Sotheby's. They'd known him for years. If Christie's wanted that $20 million worth of business, they were going to have to win him over. It was very, very hard job for me, Mr. Hashiyama. This is Kanai Ishibashi. She worked at Christie's Tokyo office alongside Jonathan. Just think of her as the client whisperer. She'd been paying visits to Mr. Hashiyama since almost her first day on the job. But he'd been proving tricky. He really doesn't sort of talk about... um, business. We talked about art and music and, you know, his great passion for dinosaurs. You know, we, 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 we could spend hours laughing. So he told me that when his company was listed in, in a stock market, which was a very, very important incident, he chose the insurance company um, by throwing dice. Yeah. Yes. So... When I heard that story, I was I found it really funny, and you know he he's a bit sort of eccentric and all that. But we couldn't really read 
where he his mind was. First of all, how many how many over how many years were you doing this? I think we'd spent six years. Um, six years. Yeah, meeting with Mr. Hashiyama before the auction. That's incredible. And meanwhile, though, um, you, you're not the only person meeting with him. I I would take it. No, 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 no. Sotheby's, they were there all the time. And after both houses had finally given their big presentations on why Mr. Hashiyama should choose them and not, you know, the other place. He came back with this extraordinary request. I received a call from Mr. Hashiyama in the office. And he said in order to determine um, which auction house to handle collection. I would like both of you, Christie's and Sotheby's, to play the game Rock, Paper, Scissors. Yes, you heard her right. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Mr. Hashiyama wanted the two biggest auction houses in the world to play a $20 million game of Rochambeau. I think there was a moment, a moment of silence and surprise, and then what? That's it. I, 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 I didn't really reply back to him. I couldn't really answer him. Like, why are you doing this? And you know, we, we can't really do that. I, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, we didn't know what to do, but it was very clear that it was, it was a very serious request from the client. Um, and so when a client asks you to do something, you just get on and do it. Here's how it would work. Each side, Christie's and Sotheby's, would have the weekend to come up with their choice of quote-unquote weapon. Then, on Monday morning, they would meet at the Mass Prodango offices in Tokyo, and there they would duel. This was one game, and Kanai's job was to write down one word on a piece of paper. And that word had to be either rock or paper or scissors. So we started compulsively playing rock, paper, scissors, trying to work out how do we win this? Is there some secret to this? How bad are you going to feel? How idiotic are you going to look in front of your your colleagues when you've lost a collection for, for a child's game? I don't really remember those those three days. I mean, I was uh, I was under enormous pressure to think what would be the best strategy. But my struggle was always that I, I knew that there is no strategy because it's it's just a pure chance. So constantly, whenever I had some moment on a train or walking in the streets, I, I, I suddenly sort of thought about rock paper scissors. I had to contemplate uh, between choices. I think it's paper. No, 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 I think it's rock. Then I said, no, 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 no. I, I shouldn't do it because there is no answer. There is no answer. Let, 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 let's stop. But then even though I tried not to think about it, I couldn't really forget about rock, paper, scissors from my mind. Do you think Mr. Hashiyama, do you think he was like just like sitting back, rubbing his hands together like mischievously? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. And meanwhile, of course... She was getting all kinds of advice. Every time I walked past Kanai, I was constantly like, why do we go with rock? You know, it's the, it's the strong thing. And then there was this guy. Uh, my name's Nate McLean. Her boss at the Christie's offices in New York. Where we ran the Impressionist and Modern Art Department. 
Did you have uh, an opinion about which to choose? No, but obviously the first thing I did when I got home, I was telling my wife about this, and my daughters. I'm Flora. I'm Alice. They were 11 then. They're 20 now. And the fun fact about them is... We are twins. Are you identical twins? Yeah, very identical. One's left-handed, one's right-handed. Mirror twins. And we were in the kitchen of our home in New York, and he was saying, I've got a bit of an issue. Sotheby's is going to get the steal. We were like, oh, yeah, we hate Sotheby's. And they came back to me quite promptly and said, yeah, Dad, everybody knows you start with scissors. Yeah, scissors is the pretty standard move. So I said, well, how does that work? And they said, well, most people like the idea of going with, with rock. But because they were like super clever Sotheby's, we're like, oh, they're going to bluff. So Sotheby's would choose paper. But you then double bluff by going scissors and scissors cuts paper. And I said, all right, that sounds good. I said, what if they go scissors? They said, you go scissors again. Because that's what I do. Yeah, you just stick with scissors and see what happens. At which point, Nick called up Kanai. And he said, Kanai, scissors. I think scissors uh, is, is a thing. And at that point, we get into the theatre of the absurd. You know, we're, we're about to do this massive piece of business. And we're, we're listening to the advice of 11-year-olds. Would you, would you have been willing to go with uh, Alice and Flora's choice, uh, regardless of what it would have been? Would, would that have struck you as like a... At least, I, at least I'd have had someone else to blame if it was wrong. But I wouldn't feel with my gut that, that you know, scissors are the best choice. Or rather, I would say, um, I reached to the point where the situation got beyond my capacity. I think I didn't quite sleep a few days. But on that Sunday um, evening, I, I slept for a few hours. And then suddenly, uh, my husband came up in my dream. He said, can I? And he told me what choice I should come up with. Then I woke up and I, I, I saw the window and the sky was beginning to light up. I didn't look at the time, but I felt really sort of refreshed. Somehow, my husband's voice really struck me and I, I didn't even think about, you know, right or wrong, but I felt that it was a choice for me and I would go for it. So Monday morning, the car comes to pick me up with her in it, and we start driving off towards the Masprodenko office. And did she tell you what she decided? No. She didn't? No, she was keeping her cards very close to her chest. Did you pro- pro- prod her, like, oh, come on, can I just tell me? What yeah, of course, but, you know, you try and get a secret out of her, she won't tell you. At that point, would you have... Um... Happily got out of the car and walked away, yes. Um, so, Why would you want to walk away, though? I feel like the tension might be unbearable, but how could you possibly not want to be there in that room? Yeah, but it might be it might be like, like watching a kitten being steamrolled as well. Because if the pressure was big on me, it was absolutely massive on her. So she had prepared herself and was sort of entering a, a semi-zen state. So we arrive. We're shown to a waiting room. Then... The two people from Sotheby's arrive. Do you uh, recognize the two people from Sotheby's? Yeah, you know, I knew who I knew who they were. Um, but it's it's hardly the moment for you know. Hi, how are you? 
um, more sort of a grunt. So we sit one side of the table, they sit the other side of the table, and there are two accountants and a fax machine. And somewhere on the other side of the fax machine, Mr. Hashiyama himself waiting for the results. And we're told to write down the word. And Jonathan actually looked at me, and beneath the table, he showed me rock um, with his hand. And um, his eyes were very sharp. And he nodded to me once. I think he nodded for, to, to make sure that it was, a, it was a good decision. And she's just saying nothing, so... Nothing. Nothing. And she goes ahead and writes down a word. Can you see what word she wrote? It's in kanji. I don't read Japanese. But looking at the face of the accountant, holding the piece of paper, you could tell nothing. He was totally inscrutable. He looks at it for what was probably 30 seconds, and your, your heart's in your mouth. And then Maspro person um, opened the envelope, and he, he said, Sotheby's, paper, Christie's, scissors. And then they look at Kanai and say, you won. And it was like a huge, a huge weight had gone off her shoulders. But after we went outside the building, we, we screamed. Saved by Kanai. Completely saved by Kanai. Would you be deputy chairman of Christie's if uh, if if you if you had gone for Rock? Uh, no, I suspect I might still be there, but I probably wouldn't be quite where I am now. Really, it really would have had that kind of effect. It would have been a it's a huge career block. You just lost a great big deal. Obviously, he should have come to us first. You never go paper. Paper just sounds that it's not going to win. It's a weak move. Wait, 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 why not paper? Because the other person's going to stick with scissors? It's just a weak move. Whether Mr. Hashiyama himself would agree with that, we don't know. But Kanai would meet him again at the art auction in New York. And normally, you know, clients, they demand the very best restaurants in New York. But he said, well, I won't have a steak. So we went to, um, to the real sort of New York steak steakhouse, having crumb chowder and, and steak together. And it was a very simple dinner, but it was very nice. Did he ever talk about rock, paper, scissors again? Or did you ever bring it up? No, he never brought it up and I didn't talk about it. But two years later, uh, Mr. Hashema um, passed away. And that was the last time I saw him. Today, Kanai Ishibashi has quit the auction business entirely. She now runs a music school with her husband in Tokyo. And as for Nick's twin daughters, Alice and Flora, shortly after the art auction, Time magazine ran a section called Quotes of the Week. The Pope was there, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think the President, and Alice McLean. She has it framed. Yep, it's framed. (laughs) In the house. (laughs) What was her quote? Everybody knows you go scissors. Special shout out to Carol Vogel over at the New York Times who first reported on this story back in 2004. For a link to her original article and more, check out our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece is produced by Joe Rosenberg with sound design 
by Leon Moriboto. Now when Snap Judgment returns, a woman wonders if the only way to feel human is not to feel human. Discover the amazing answer when Snap Judgment, the simpatico episode, continues. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap Judgment. Check out NPR's Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, your guide to what's good in pop culture. Every week, Jesse Thorne interviews musicians, writers, filmmakers, comedians, and other creators about their creative work and lives. Find your new favorite TV show, book, movie, and music, and gain new insights into the things you already love. Find Bullseye now at iTunes under Podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the simpatico episode. Today, we're digging into what it's like to find yourself on someone else's wavelength. To feel that connection to someone other than yourself, no matter how briefly. And we're bringing it back, way back. Think origins of man back. That's where we're headed with our next piece. A story told by a woman who always, always felt more than a little removed. understand fully that I was different because I really felt like I was part of everything around me. I really didn't understand that I had a separate body, so I felt, you know, the plants around me. I felt the animals around me. I had cross-sensing as well. So I could, for example, I could see very loud noises, taste sounds. It's really difficult to explain. It's almost like trying to explain a color somebody's never seen. It's a very integrated experience. This overstimulation problem leads to difficulties communicating with people. I had a really difficult time in school. On a sensory level, public school is is a real nightmare. It smells bad, the clanking of the lockers are loud, the halls make noise reverberate. You sit in a hard chair at a hard desk looking at a hard chalkboard. People really couldn't tolerate the ways that I was strange. They really did just think I was weird. A lot of the things I did with great intentions and and an open heart were misunderstood. One example comes to mind when I was in third grade. I was really struggling by then. So I had this great idea that 
everyone likes dogs, and dogs learn really fast. So I'll just be a dog in class, and everything will go better. My teacher will have an easier time. The kids will like me better. I got down on all fours and uh, did a dog smile and sort of opened my mouth and put my tongue out and crawled around and approached people in a friendly manner and wagged my tail and sat down on my haunches and paid attention when it was time to listen to the teacher. Well, she yanked me up by my ear and threw me in the corner and yelled at the class to quit laughing. Certainly my, my family were not immune to misunderstanding my intentions, and I was often at odds with them. So I was going outside in, in the nighttime to sort of calm down, and I scooted around the house and looked in the window and was able to really see my family in a way that was... I guess a lot clearer because I had a lot less sensory input. I could look in through the window and see my family and feel closer to them than if I had been in the same room. It was a convenient barrier that allowed me to turn down the volume on all my senses so that I could relax and see things a little bit, I guess, like most people do. I left home at about 15. At that point in my life, I knew people were not feeling connected to me. I just decided to leave. I went down to the end of the driveway and stuck out my thumb and It was roughly five years I was homeless off and on. I went all over the country that way, and I really can't believe I'm still alive, to be honest. I ended up in Seattle. Uh, I stayed on the streets. I remember in, in a really cold December, I spent most of my time in the stairwell of a church up on Capitol Hill, just uh, sitting on a cardboard box flattened out on the concrete and being homeless was really terrible um hot cold loud hard i used to go to the clubs talk my way in just because there was something about that level of maybe it was the beat of the music that that was really persistent and almost familiar, maybe like a heartbeat or something very primal about it. It was really comforting to me, so I would go to clubs and I like to move with the music and somebody said, you're a good dancer, you should make some money with that and I said, no, not if it's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> and they, they said, well, you know, you, you can't really be snobbish about this, you're homeless. And I thought, well, that's true. So, yeah, I ended up as an erotic dancer for a while. Interestingly, once again, looking through the glass at people, that was the setup. It was more or less a stage 
surrounded by windows. People put quarters in and the, the little shade lifts up and you have so many seconds per quarter or something. Anything like a, a wall or a window would serve as an artificial barrier or means of containment. I didn't feel like being homeless was a good life for me, but I didn't think there was a good life for me in any context. I, I was starving for nature, and so with one of my very first paychecks, I decided to brave the, the bus system and go to the zoo. It was a, a really major undertaking because when I get really overwhelmed, my senses start shutting down one at a time. So first I'll lose my hearing, I'll lose my sense of touch, my sight gets down to the size of a dime. So here I am on the city street sort of trying to look around through this dime-sized hole of vision for the bus number, how much money I put in. Luckily I get off on the, on the right stop. Then I have to go figure out how to get in the zoo. But then, when I turned the corner and saw the gorillas, I just sat there. I just sat there that day, and I, I sat there for hours, and I just watched them. And There was just this, this epiphany, this flood of identification, where I thought, these are people. And more importantly, these are people that understand me and they're people that I am going to understand for the first time in my life. I'm guessing that's what most people feel like with each other, most human beings feel like with each other, but I hadn't felt that before. It was just amazing. They didn't look me right in the eye for about an hour and a half. They very tenderly waited and, and kind of felt where I was, eventually glancing over at me really quickly and then putting their heads down again. It was just a very slow-moving, tender social interaction. It's so much different. The way that it was set up at the Seattle Zoo, they had really big windows. I think that was the one time I felt that glass was an unfortunate body because I wanted to be with them. It's as if you were going home after years and years of being in the war and you get home and your entire house is glassed in. You can't find the door, you can't go in through the window, you just press your face against home. I went every day that I could possibly go just to sit there, just to sit there and stare at the gorillas, not stare at them rudely, but just sort of diffusely stare, if that makes any sense, and watch what they were doing and the public would just sort of vanish. Everything just slowed down. Watching the gorillas interact with each other was, was really heartwarming because 
even though they had squabbles, you know, they were still so much a part of each other. They really, I believe, that they experience reality a lot more like I did or a lot a lot like other autistic, quote-unquote, autistic people, where they don't get the sense that they are just one individual person sort of floating out there, some kind of discrete consciousness in a body. So their behavior was really inspiring to me. I was really delighted to see that the gorillas made nests every day. When I was a kid, I remember making just those kinds of nests. I would weave branches together, put in leaves, make it really comfortable. I think the reasons that both of us did that is because we find smaller and smaller places to try to avoid feeling intensity of any kind. I was so obsessed I would start to grab zoo workers that were walking by and pepper them with questions, and they were really patient with me, uh, to their credit. Uh, There were people who saw how devoted I was to the gorillas and their well-being, and eventually I got to, to work with them. It led to me going back to school, which I never thought I would do. I found a master's and PhD program. It was after being there for probably, I guess it was about 10 years at that point, at, you know, watching the gorillas and directly applying what I had learned from them in my human interactions. And I had a really bad week. But there were always those those times where I felt like I took many steps back <laughs> backward. So that was one of those weeks, and I always wanted to just go see the gorillas when that happened. So the gorilla I was closest to, Congo, who was about I think he was about thirty three at the time, who had had a terrible, terrible life. He saw me that day that I had this terrible week. And immediately he knew there was something wrong. He furrowed his brows and came rushing over to the window and searched my face. And then he could tell that I was just crushed. And so he pushed his shoulder against the glass and motioned with his hand for me to put my head down. And I put my head down on his shoulder and cried and cried. And he just... made gorilla contentment noises while I cried and cried. I probably stayed with him like that with my head on his shoulder for 30 minutes or so. I think it was probably the first time I was genuinely comforted by, by another person. Congo really set the standard for what social interactions should be like between me and another living being. You just can't worry about looking like a fool. You can't worry about getting hurt. You can't worry about whether you're right or not. It just boils down to wanting to be connected at all costs, at all risks. 
I no longer wanted to allow the permeability of my spirit to seek smaller and smaller shelters. It requires a completely open heart. I felt like I found a way to go home through the glass. Here's what's even more amazing. Dawn went on to get a master's degree and a PhD in anthropology. She was finally diagnosed with autism at the age of 38. She's worked with the Jane Goodall Institute and she's published a whole slew of books. Find out all about her truly miraculous work at our website, snapjudgment.org. That story is produced by Anna Sussman with sound design by Renzo Gorio. Sam Judgment returns, someone is looking for a miracle, and they find it. On Snap Judgment, the Sympatico episode, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap. Take a cruise around iTunes for lots of other NPR podcasts including Invisibilia, NPR's newest podcast. You can also brush up on your British slang with Andy Serkis and listen to Microphone Check, the hip-hop podcast from NPR Music. Browse them all at itunes.com NPR. Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Sympatico episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today on the Snap, we're looking for connections that go way beyond the regular. And for our next story, Snap Judgment's Davey Kim takes us back to Nick Earle's last year of medical school. In fact, this story goes back to Nick's last 20 minutes of medical school. That's right. Snap Judgment. On my way to my last exam where two surgeons would show me a patient and I'd have to take a history, do an examination, go through questions, then go to another one and do that again, I realised that if I didn't do well, that I could fail the surgery viva because these things are a lottery. And, uh, and then I wouldn't pass surgery and I wouldn't graduate with my friends and I would be coming back in a, in a month or so to do another surgical term as a student. So never in my entire degree had so much hinged on 20 minutes. So I turned up rather more anxious than I should have been and the two examiners met me and led me into the first patient and gave me five minutes to take a history and do an examination which really is not very long at all. And I took the history, there didn't seem to be anything too remarkable going on, it sounded like a story of of reflux esophagitis. So then I examined the patient's abdomen and 
as expected with that condition found nothing and thought I really hope that's it because if there's something if there's something big here I've, I've totally missed it the examiners came in and I presented my findings and I said my diagnosis was that I thought it was reflux esophagitis and, uh, and they said good good without giving too much away I thought I'm on the right track here and how would you treat reflux esophagitis and I thought, aha, trap for the young player. Uh, in a surgical exam, where you go wrong is by, by suggesting massive replumbing in the first minute. Well, I'd start conservatively. <laughs> and they said, that's good, that's good, what would you use? And I was thinking, come on, this is just a bit of reflux, this is just a bit of heartburn. And I just, my mind went completely blank. And all that occurred to me was an ad that was on TV at the time for Gaviscon. <laughs> Gaviscon, the calming raft for rapid relief of heartburn and indigestion. <laughs> it was all I had. So I just said, well, I, I, might, start with, uh, I might start with some uh, Gavis, gone. And they said, all right. Patient smirked. I thought, enough, enough of that from you, thanks. Um, and they said, and what's the mechanism of action of Gaviscon? I thought we six years in this degree and we've never mentioned Gaviscon. Or all I've got is the TV ad. That's all I've got. And I don't even remember the TV ad for Gaviscon from the mid nineteen eighties. But all I could do was look at them with a kind of engaging smile and go, I'm led to believe it forms a calming raft. <laughs> and um, at which the patient laughed and the examiners who should have laughed went stony faced on me. And I thought, this is it not getting the honours degree, and right at the moment I'm spiralling towards earth with smoke coming out of my I need to be a genius with the second case, which I know is going to be harder and a bit more involved and surely involves something physical. So they took me in to the, the room with the, the second person just behind the screen, and there was a man standing there with no pants on, and I thought that's a bit of a hint about where I'll be heading. And, um, and they said, we'd like you to examine this gentleman's scrotal mass is test yeah so I went down went down on my knees and I started I thought no 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 don't touch it first there's a rule like you you're, we had 10 things to do to a lump 10 things to do to a lump I needed to do to do all 10 of them and I needed to do them in a reasonable order so that I went down on my knees and went whoa whoa <laughs> like checking the whole scrotum out so they go yes he inspected first and then it's hands to the scrotum for the palpation and straight away I could feel it was a varicocele of the, of the, yeah, and so I knew what it was, and I thought, great. But then I thought, no, no, not great, because if you turn around now and tell them what it is, you've only done two out of the ten things you do to a lump. So graduated inspection, palpation, percussion, auscultation. I put in my stethoscope and I listened to it, because <laughs> that's what you do to a lump. And I gradually worked my way through, and sensing that they were nodding. Then I got to about number eight. Okay, um, uh, transilluminate. Can I shine my torch through this mass? So I passed my hand between his thighs and lit it from behind there no light coming through and then I've got one more to do I got what is it what does it transmit a cough impulse okay so I cupped the scrotum in my hands and I and I said to the man oh, could you please turn your head and cough and he turned his head and instead of coughing he said there's the Pope and that's why I thought I'm going to fail this exam now because of course I should have diagnosed the psychotic illness when I came in and it's not testicular at all. But then I got my chin up on the window ledge and looked out the window and down there was the Pope. <laughs> so, so it was the one day in history that the Pope has visited Brisbane and Pope John Paul II said mass at QE2 Stadium on the south side and he was on his way back into the city in the papal cavalcade and there he was and I was you know, on my knees cupping a scrotum and... <laughs> 
and he stopped the Pope Mobile and he looked up. Uh, and, and because we are a hospital, he looked up and he very slowly started to bless us. And, and the man was going, Can you believe that? That's the Pope. He's looking right at us. I was going, Yeah, you've got no pants on. Um, and, uh, and, they, and he was talking about the Pope and I could hear the examiners behind me talking about the Pope and I thought, Maybe I can release the scrotum now. So. <laughs> So I let go and quietly backed away on my knees as the pantsless man and my examiners just crapped on about the Pope for the next 10 minutes. And he looked right up at us. Would you believe that? He looked right up at us. Who would have thought the Pope would have blah, 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 blah. And then the buzzer went off and my exam was over. And they looked at me and they realised they'd forgotten to examine me. And they said, all right, then, thanks. That was, yeah, that's really good. And they had to give me a very good mark because they'd forgotten. So I ended up getting the honours degree after all. Thanks to Nick for sharing that story. Now, Nick is no longer a doctor. Thank goodness he's now an award-winning novelist. And a special shout-out as well to Conversations with Richard Fiddler for bringing us Nick's story. Conversations is an Australian radio program filled with in-depth interviews and storytelling. To find out more about author Nick Earls and Conversations with Richard Fiddler, we'll have links on our website, Snap Judgment. It's about that time, but you're thinking to yourself, that, 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 that's not enough snap. Stories are life. I need more in my world. Well, I've got the solution. The Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast. Subscribe now at snapjudgment.org. Hours of amazing storytelling from amazing people. And join the Snap Nation conversation on Facebook. Snap Judgment Twitter. Snap Judgment. Snap was produced by myself and the team that always sees eye to eye. My brother from another mother. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. The beat master, Pat Masidi Miller. On her own wavelength, Anna Sussman. Julia DeWitt this master of her domain. Joe Rosenberg brings the pain. Nancy Lopez rides the train while Davey Kim plays the game. The Get Her Done crew, Anna Allerstein, Eliza Smith, Leon Morimoto, and Aurora Soria. Ask Jasmine Aguilera no questions, and Jasmine Aguilera will tell you no lies. Did you ever see a baby with a snap judgment tattoo emblazoned on their forehead? No, <laughs> we didn't either. It was all Photoshop, we assure. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting 
we're 97% certain no infants were harmed in the making of this program. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, does have a snap tattoo hidden where you can't see it. PRX.org. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could dress up your baby for the first day of school, give him a kiss on the forehead, drop him off in the schoolyard only to receive a call from the school principal four hours later. I'm sorry, madam. This school is for human children, not for gorillas. What's wrong with you? You're taking this whole simpatical thing too far. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. This is NPR.